Well, we, I'm going to pick back up with a series that I started on Pentecost, which is, the title is Church in the Life of the Spirit. And really it's a, a sermon series this summer where we're exploring the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and also in our lives as um, believers. And this morning, um, I wanna go back to the, to the book of Acts and our scripture text this morning comes to us from a well-known passage from Acts chapter two, starting in verse 42. <clears throat> and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and all had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Pray with me one more time. Father, uh, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in the same way that you did the church over 2,000 years ago to, to be a, a temple of your presence. Uh, give us light and illumination for our hearts. Stir our hearts this morning by your Spirit and help us to come to a new understanding, a deeper understanding and awareness of the person of the Holy Spirit and, and his presence in our lives. So meet us wherever we're at, scattered about, um, knowing that your spirit overcomes the distances that separate us from one another and from you. So may that spirit of union and unity uh, be in our midst. In the name of Jesus. So this morning I wanna explore with you the social life of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a social life. Um, did you know that? <laughs> we tend to think of the Spirit as a kind of impersonal force or presence that kind of lurks around in the background, sort of like a Christianized version of the force from Star Wars. But the Holy Spirit is a person, a social person at that, not an introvert. And so it makes sense that he would have a social life, just like you and I have social lives. The Holy Spirit has always had a social life from eternity within the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in heaven, the Holy Spirit has a social life among all the heavenly hosts, angels and cherubim and seraphim and whatever other strange and marvelous creatures are there that we don't even know about. And the Holy Spirit has always had a social life and relationship with animal life and with plant life. And you, we learn about this, especially in Psalm 104. However, with humankind, since the fall, since sin entered the world, the relationship and the social life of the Spirit with human beings has been strained, to put it mildly. But in Pentecost, Pentecost is this world historical event which fundamentally changes and reshapes 
the Holy Spirit's relationship to human beings. At Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. At Pentecost, the relationship, the social relationship between human beings and the Holy Spirit is set right again. But it is set right and centered in the life of the church. Now, of course, the Spirit's social life is not, in a sense, locked up in a building or locked up in a people or limited, but it is concentrated there. And for us as human beings to come to participate fully in the churches or in the, in the social life of the Holy Spirit, we are again and again by the scriptures and by the Spirit himself directed into the life of the church itself, the visible church. But again, this is, this is hard for us to understand this idea of what does it mean for us to discern the social life of the Trinity or the social life rather of the Holy Spirit. It's a challenge conceptually. And there's two problems in particular that I wanna mention or that confront us. The first is the problem of individualism and the second one is the problem of invisibility. As modern people, as modern American Western people, we tend to think about the person of the Holy Spirit in very individualistic categories. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, our experience of the Holy Spirit, it's usually in terms of our own personal experience, something we've felt or something we've sensed. Um, we think of ecstatic moments of prayer or, or worship or miraculous events. Again, things that we experience. And these are, these are evidences oftentimes of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But we, we often are limited in our vocabulary and our categories for thinking about the Holy Spirit to very individual, interior, personal, or subjective categories. But I want you to imagine you have a friend in which your only knowledge of this person is ex limited exclusively to your own personal experience of them. It would be like saying that they do not exist or their existence only is there insofar as you are experiencing them, as you are in their presence in a firsthand kind of way. And this kind of sounds ridiculous, right? Like, because we know that, you know, we exist beyond simply, you know, our interactions with one another. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. Very often, I think, we talk about the Spirit and we can only discern the Spirit insofar as we have personal experiences of the Spirit. But there's a lot more to the Holy Spirit than simply our experience of the Holy Spirit. But this is hard for us to discern because you and I have bodies, right? And we're visible and we have a public presence and obviously there's more to me than your relationship with me. We all, <clears throat> there's more to us. But this is the problem though with the Holy Spirit who is an invisible personality, which brings us to the second problem, right? We cannot see the Holy Spirit. So make, discerning the Spirit's presence and personality and public visible reality is, is very challenging, right? So that's again why we tend to we turn inward as Western modern people. As we think about the Holy Spirit, we turn inward to our own experiences or our own kind of subjective categories. So how are we supposed to talk about the social life of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is invisible? How do we do that? We need the church to do that. We need to have a category of the church to do that because the life of the church 
is the place where the spirit becomes visible and the spirit becomes public. It is in the life of the church the spirit becomes social. We see the social life of the church or the social life of the Holy Spirit. So <clears throat> the church is a creature of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the lessons and one of the things we learn from this, this in, in the book of Acts. The church really comes into existence when the spirit, when, when Jesus Christ pours out the Holy Spirit upon his people. <clears throat> the church is where we come to experience and participate in the life of the Spirit. And if you remember the Gospels and the book of Acts on multiple occasions, Jesus tells and prophesies to his disciples, I someday, someday I'm going to leave, but I'm going to give you something greater, the presence, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. I will pour out the Spirit upon you. The church is promised the presence of the Holy Spirit. I think we we take for granted now, I think this is part of understanding the New Testament witness of the Holy Spirit is understanding how you could not, like Pentecost is, is a paradigm shift in the way that, that the people of God came to experience the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a gift, as a promised gift, not as a possession to control or to manipulate, but as a promise that God says, I will be with my people. And I think what this means, especially as we even think about the meaning of the church, is that the Holy Spirit is the animating life of the church. Every dimension of the church's social life, its existence, must be grasped by continual reference to the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you read the New Testament, you just look at where the Spirit comes up and, and the action, the language of the Spirit of the New Testament. There's, there's so many different things that the Holy Spirit is doing, right? Let me just give you some of the, the things that you find in Acts and also in Paul's epistles. The Spirit commands, the Spirit enlightens, the Spirit equips, the Spirit gifts, empowers, leads, corrects, speaks, fills, prophesies, tests, comforts, appoints, convicts, judges, deliberates, baptizes, enfolds, ordains, and sends. Those are some of the things that the Spirit does the New Testament talks about. The Spirit is always at work in the life of the church, in all things. Even in the most mundane and boring and routine things, the Spirit is at work. It's not as if there are human things that we do and then we need the spirit to show up to kind of supply the supernatural and the miraculous things. There's a way in which the spirit is, is poured out on all aspects of our flesh and all aspects of the life of the church. All of the life of the church must be done in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is true even when we don't have a special sense and experience of the spirit. The history of the church itself is, in a sense, a history of the Holy Spirit. The history of the church is a history of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can hear your objections already. <clears throat> it's not simply a matter of, um, well, the objection is this. I mean, the church obviously has done a lot of bad things, right? The church often fails. <laughs> How do we make sense of that? To say that the history of the church is a history of the Holy Spirit is not simply a matter of saying that everything that the church does, the Holy Spirit does. 
or that everything that the Holy Spirit does, only the church can do and perform. Sometimes the church lives in disobedience to the Holy Spirit. And I wanna uh, draw your attention to a story that comes just a couple chapters after this chapter. It is in chapter five of Acts, and it is a story of, of a wealthy couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They had um, a piece of land, a real estate, that they, they sold for um, a large sum of money. And they came to the apostles, or Sapphira did, and gave it to them. Um, but she held some of it back. But she made uh, the church think, or the apostles think, that she, they had given all of the, prop, all of the money um, from the sale to the church so that people would see them as, as really generous. And Peter, Peter confronts her. And it's interesting what he says to her. He doesn't say, why did you lie to us? Why did you lie to the apostles? He says this, why, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? He repeats this twice, actually. Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why did you test the Holy Spirit? Now, she's actually interacting with the apostles, with the church body itself, but Peter accuses her of lying to the Holy Spirit. I think there's a couple really important truths that come out of this. Lying to the church, lying to the apostles, was equivalent to lying to the Holy Spirit, right? <clears throat> lying to the church, lying to the apostles was equivalent to lying to the Holy Spirit. And the first, on the, what this story teaches, I think, is a very complex truth. On the one hand, not everything that is done in the name of the church or by members of the church is of the Holy Spirit. You have to see that, right? You see this throughout the New Testament. Not everything that is done by members of the church or even the leaders of the church the apostles themselves or pastors is always of the Holy Spirit because we can disobey the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, the Holy Spirit is so closely uh, related to the life of the church that to sin against the church is to sin against the person of the Holy Spirit. To lie to the church is to lie to the Holy Spirit. To imperil the social life of the church is to imperil the social life of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to focus on, this is a, that's a tough story in the book of Acts. But, and I, I use it as an illustration to help make a distinction here. That not everything that the church does is always of the Holy Spirit, and yet the relationship between the church and the Holy Spirit is so interconnected that you cannot at the end of the day, pull them apart. But this morning, really what I wanna focus on and then bringing us back to this, the text in front of us this morning is, this, is the positive side of this, this question. What does it mean for the church to be a community filled with the Holy Spirit? What are the signs and marks of a church in which the social life of the, of the Holy Spirit is alive and present? What does that look like? And I believe that the account that we have here of the church in Acts uh, 2, at the end of the chapter of Acts, is a description of a spirit-filled community. And I just want to draw your attention to the, where this, this passage um, lands in our, in our story, because it's, it's at the very end of chapter 2. And chapter 2 is really the, all about Pentecost. Pentecost begins the chapter. Peter preaches. Many people are converted. And then we have just this little vignette, this little picture 
of the community that emerges out of this Pentecostal experience of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And so I just want to explore with you three marks this morning of a Spirit-filled community. Um, and and there's, there's a lot of other marks <laughs> that you could, you could draw out of this text and from other places, but I just want to focus on three. And the first one is this. Um, one of the first marks of being a Spirit-filled community is that you are a liturgical community. What does it mean to be a liturgical community? What I mean by that is this, is that to be a liturgical community is to have our whole life as a body, as a community, ordered to the praise and worship of God. In other words, worship is the pattern of our life together. Our lives are ritualized around praise of God. And this is, again, the portrait you see in this text. Let me just read a couple verses for you. <clears throat> and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and praising God. All of the basic elements of worship you find in this text, right? You see the apostles' teaching, which is a reference to doctrine and to, to preaching and to instruction. You have fellowship, breaking of bread as a, is a reference to the Lord's Supper. We have learned already in the verses coming before this that there was baptism. Um, Peter calls people to baptize. The prayers, actually. The prayers, what are those? Those are, those, those are ritualized prayers from Jewish tradition to participate in the prayers. I mean, there's a, <clears throat> the people are also in the temple. They're gathering together in the temple um, to pray. And, and I think you could say that these early Christians were a worshiping community. And I think some people would, would prefer to say that, and that is true. And, but I've, I've used this word liturgical for a reason. I'm not trying to make a point about styles of worship here. But the word liturgy helps us get at the ways in which worship actually structures, that, there, there are, that structures our lives, it patterns our community, it, 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 it forms our calendars, it, 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 it penetrates the, day, the times of our day, it, it actually involves specific repeatable actions like the Lord's Supper that are rituals. And to emphasize this is not to um, say that there weren't you know, new forms of worship, new prayers for sure. The Lord's Supper, of course, is a new, something that Jesus gives his disciples along with the, the baptism. And yet there, there is a kind of orderliness, sacramental character to um, the worship of these early Christians. And these are, of course, the things that we see across the scriptures that God commands us to do read the scripture, study the scripture, preaching, sacramental celebration, singing, confession, prayers, gathering, letting the, the worship life of the church uh, form our calendars, our experience of time itself. So, so, so I think that, that is one of the signs of the social life of, of, of the Holy Spirit in our midst is that he, he makes us into a liturgical community. We are people that come together to worship and to experience him in our hearts and to sing songs, but it's more than just an emotional experience. 
You know, I, I want to just mention one, what I'll call a Holy Spirit defeater belief around this theme of worship. Because, um, and by defeater belief, I mean, especially here, is this, it's one of those beliefs that tends to make it difficult for us to discern the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the common defeater beliefs around understanding the Holy Spirit in our lives is to set the Holy Spirit in opposition to set forms of worship. And many people think that spirit-filled worship needs to be emotional, it needs to be personally expressive all the time, and you always get excited, right? It needs to be spontaneous and unscripted if the Spirit is to show up. And I just want to be really clear here. I, I, I actually, by no means do I deny that, <laughs> that at times the spontaneity in worship is the Holy Spirit breaking in, doing new things, that worship in the Holy Spirit should, ex should excite our hearts, should stir our affections, should be something that we experience. All of those things are true. And I, you see this in the text as, as well, where it says, um, as the apostles are doing all these great and mighty deeds, that awe came upon every soul, right? Awe, like the sense of, of just the, the sense of God, the experience of God in the Spirit. All these things are true. I don't want to deny any of that. But we should be very careful from setting an experience in spirit-filled worship in opposition to liturgy or set forms or things that we do in repeated way or things that we experience and do but don't necessarily get all excited about. It's not an either-or. It's not an either-or. True worship is liturgical and it is charismatic at the same time. The Spirit uses forms. He uses baptism, he uses the supper, he uses preaching, he uses memorized prayers, the Lord's prayer, creeds, he uses all those things. As Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well in John 4, <clears throat> we worship in spirit and in truth. But the bottom line here on this point I wanna make about being a liturgical community is that we are a vertical community. What distinguishes the church from every other institution it is, its primary um, directional vision is upward. Mo oh, even the family, like we're sort of horizontal, but the church is that one place, and this is a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a church, is that the Spirit is always leading us upward. Always leading us upward in worship. The Spirit in our midst, he's, the Spirit is always trying to socialize us to, to the life with Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit is trying to make us, always leading us to be a God-centered people, a people that is defined by praise and worship at the very center of their existence and their life and always. So this is the first aspect of the social life of the Holy Spirit, is just to direct us upward together as his people, to make us a liturgical community that is patterned, that the very patterns of our life reflect praise and worship. So that's the first sign or, or maybe mark, if you will, of a spirit-filled community. The second one is to be a covenantal community. To be a covenantal community. To be a covenantal community is to be a people and a place for promise-making and keeping. A spirit-filled church is not necessarily a crowd of people that shows up on a Sunday morning for a worship experience. A spirit-filled church is a community of people that have covenanted together to follow Jesus, 
to bear with one another and to care for one another's needs, spiritually, financially, socially. Just like a family is built around promises, promise making and promise keeping, so is the church. The church is a place of promise making and keeping within the local community. Again, this is the work of the social life of, of, of the Holy Spirit in our midst. A sign that the Spirit is at work in our fellowship is that we are being drawn together more and more in deeper fellowship and more meaningful relationships with one another. A sign that you belong to the church is that it begins to rearrange your social life, your calendar, how you think about how you spend your money and your time. And there's three, three things that, that I think, this is a kind of synthesis of a number of things that you see in this text. I want to draw your attention to three practices that we see in this little portrait of the early church. Um, the first one is, is just a practice of hospitality. The practice of hospitality. There's, um, to be a hospitable person or to be a hospitable community is to open your heart, first of all, and your home for people to come in and, and find friendship. I mean, that's the essence of hospitality is, is an open heart and an open home for people to come in and no longer be strangers, but friends. And you see this again in the text in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together, they were breaking bread in their homes and they received food with glad and generous hearts. Hospitality is central work of the Holy Spirit in our midst, and it always involves risk. It always involves vulnerability. When you welcome strangers and new people into your life, you don't know what you're going to get, and this can make us really uncomfortable. But again, one of the signs of the, of the Holy Spirit in our midst is he's always pushing us to open up our hearts. He's always pushing us to open up our hearts and then open up our calendars, <laughs> open up our homes for people to come in and to become friends. So that's the first mark. The second one is you see here, and I'll just briefly note this, is that, and it's sort of assumed, but these are people that are devoted to the fellowship. They're devoted to the community. They're really committed to the community itself. Um, they didn't just show up when they felt like it. And again, I think a sign that you really belong to a church is that it begins to reorganize your social life, calendar, your commitments. Again, this is a sign of this presence of the Spirit. The third thing to draw your attention to is, is just the radical generosity of this body. Again, this is another mark of being a covenantal community, is, is just radical generosity. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to all as any had need. Generosity is a sign of the social life of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Our willingness to care for one another, especially even when it impacts our own financial standing or our own security for the good of others. Again, this is the kind of thing that only happens when we have a deep sense that we are a community of promise making and keeping, that we're willing, we're gonna be there to support one another. The work of the spirit in the corporate life of the church is always evidenced by greater commitment to the well-being of the whole body even when it disadvantages us, even when it's personally very painful, even when it is uh, very inconvenient. 
But even though the covenantal community can be a very painful experience at times and seasons, one of the byproducts of being a person that is promise-making and promise-keeping is joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and it is the fruit of giving ourselves in costly ways to the body of Christ. And that's my final um, mark here of the Holy Spirit, is to be um, a spirit-filled community is to be a joyful community, to be a joyful community. One of the signs of the social life of the Holy Spirit in our midst is that is marked by joy. Verse 46, again, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. I know it's just that one word glad there, but you, when you read the, the book of Acts, you just find that there's, there's joy, or joy and rejoicing and gladness that kind of runs throughout. And you kind of get a sense of the mood of this early community as one of joy. They're, it's one of joy. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. There's joyfulness in God. There's joyfulness in one another. There's joyfulness in what they've been given. To be a joyful community is, is not necessarily like one thing we do, right? Like this practice. But it actually describes the mood, in a sense, of the community, the disposition to be a joyful community. We need joy to be a liturgical community. We need joy to be a covenantal community. And this joy in rejoicing is made possible by the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And this is so important. The joy of the Holy Spirit is the delight in our hearts that comes about because we have been given the very presence of God in our life. It's so easy for us to take this for granted. But when David prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, take not thy spirit from me, David could not count on the fact that God's spirit would not abandon him because of his sin. And even in our sin, we know that God has promised to not take his Holy Spirit away from us. To have the Holy Spirit in our life is to have joy. And joy is not just an emotion that you have to manufacture and you sort of talk yourself into but it is something that comes about when we dwell in the middle of the life of God, when we dwell in the Spirit, when we walk in the Spirit. And it's not because everything is going well or we are not suffering or we get everything we want. The joy is because we have God. If you remember um, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah spoke to uh, exiles had been returning and they had all gathered together in one place and they heard Ezra reading the book of the law, and the people began to weep. They began to weep. And Nehemiah instructs them and calms them. He says, this is a holy day that the Lord has made. And then he says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Go home, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I think in the light of this, if Pentecost, that, that story takes on even more powerful meaning because the joy there um, is not, again, just a, a virtue or, or feeling. The joy of the Lord of, as our strength is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our strength. The Holy Spirit is our joy. I know that over the past three months plus, there has been a lot of sorrow, 
a lot of weeping, a lot of loss, and likely there's to be more of that in the future. But the possibility of being joyful, to be a joyful community does not depend on our circumstances, the circumstances of the world or our circumstances of our life personally. Ultimately, it depends upon the gift of the Holy Spirit who cannot be taken away from us, no matter what happens. So brothers and sisters, this morning, I want you to find strength and joy in the knowledge and the promise that God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon you in Jesus Christ, and that he makes joyful fellowship with you and with us. And the reason it's joy is this, is he delights in you. He delights in you. See, it's the spirit of delight that he has given to us. The joy of the Lord is knowing that God loves us and that God is pleased with us, and he assures us of this because of the promise of the Holy Spirit and his presence. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a gift that we, um, I personally, I know, take for granted, that I assume will always be there. Um, but I do pray for a fresh amazement and wonder that you have given your spirit so, Lord, in this moment, in this season, we pray that you pour out your spirit in abundance upon us, that we would discern anything in us that grieves your spirit, that keeps us from being vitally connected to your spirit, and that you fill us with the joy that your spirit, that the Holy Spirit gives us. We give you thanks and praise in the name of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.